Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Block. It's a great honor to be with President Erdogan. We've pulled back our troops because I think it's time for us not to be worried about other people's borders. If they are trying to create an oil state in Western Canada, they cannot expect any help from us. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. They're not a national party. <laughs> Good to see you as well. If they want to do something that's national, if they want to develop something that's going to benefit all Canadians, it's us. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan met with U.S. President Donald Trump at the White House last week. The meeting comes on the heels of a ceasefire reached between Kurdish and Turkish forces in northern Syria, after Turkey, a NATO member, launched attacks into this area. According to the United Nations, 92 civilians have been killed and hundreds of thousands of people displaced due to the Turkish incursion. Despite President Trump's praise for Turkey, many within the international community are asking if Turkey should be allowed to remain in NATO. Joining me now is Turkish Ambassador to Canada, Kirim Uras. Thank you very much for joining us, sir. Thank you. Uh, the Turkish government has made incursions into northern Syria, holding a few kilometers on that side of the border, about 10 or 20. Can you tell me what the status of the territory is right now there for the Turkish government and what your intentions are in terms of the future for that territory? Sure. Well, you know, we have a long border with Syria. It's 911 kilometers, to be precise. Uh, this uh, safe zone uh, would be 444 kilometers. And now we have uh, reached into a depth of about 30 kilometers uh, along that uh, 400 uh, kilometers. So uh, it's a long strip of land we're talking about. And uh, we have now cleared that uh, area from the terrorist organization. Uh, at first, when uh, our operation started, there was, of course, the civilians were getting out of harm's way and moved. But now they have moved back. And now we are in the phase of picking things up. and. Uh, like repairing water, distributing uh, medicine, aid, uh, food, and uh, uh, returning the area to normal. The United Nations says that 200,000 people have been displaced as a result of that operation, mm -hmm. and that Turkish allies who have been operating on behalf of the Turkish military have been responsible for extrajudicial killings, beatings, abuse, disappearances. Are those the methods that Turkey approves of? Of course not, and uh, we are very meticulous to uh, uphold uh, international law and humanitarian law, uh, but there are also Syrian forces there, and there can be rogue elements within them. Uh, but I am uh, happy to tell you that uh, they are being uh, now uh, investigated, and they will be, uh, if there was any action uh, that you mentioned, they will uh, be punished accordingly. Uh, I understand they are actually in jail, those people who have done uh, some uh, on. Uh, uh, non uh, something you can't approve of uh, kind of actions, uh, but uh, we are very meticulous. Our army, of course, is a NATO army. It's the second largest in NATO. It's a very disciplined army. Uh, it has uh, thousands of years of a tradition behind it, and uh, uh, our army, of course, is very uh, disciplined. But as I said, there are some rogue elements within the Syrians, but they are very isolated cases. There are some who say that your president should be charged with war crimes because of those events. 
Well, there are also uh, those like uh, President Trump who said uh, he's a great leader, he did a great job and the ceasefire is holding. So uh, I don't know who you take your cue from, but uh, uh, I would say, of course, there are those who complain. Uh, those who wanted to establish a separatist Kurdish state in Syria, carve up the country. Uh, of course, they are not happy with our operation, and that's understandably so. But uh, we are, uh, I would like to underline, we are not against the Kurds per se. We have no issue with them. Uh, we are against a terrorist organization, a proscribed terrorist organization, full stop. Well, one of the individuals leading the Kurdish forces in that area, um, General Mazulam Kobani Abdi, uh, he was the leader of the Syrian Democratic Forces, a key ally of the United States and of NATO in fighting ISIS. Mm -hmm. uh, your president has called him a terrorist. Indeed. And now uh, we, uh, he showed, actually, President Trump a video about his actions. Uh, and he's responsible for the killing of uh, a few hundred civilians plus uh, NATO army uh, members, which are the from the Turkish army. Uh, and it was quite convincing. So uh, I understand they also shared that video with the senators they met in Washington uh, recently. Uh, they were so convinced that they put a hold to uh, one of the uh, resolutions they were taking uh, to the Senate. So. Uh, this person, we know, he has a very uh, thick file with us. He's not even a Syrian. He's a Turkish citizen. Uh, he is uh, not from the YPG. He's from the PKK. Uh, Abdullah Öcalan, the uh, leader of that uh, terrorist organization, who is uh, now in jail in Turkey, uh, called him his, uh, his son. And uh, he's so close to him. He was his bodyguard. So actually, this proves our point that uh, the YPG, uh, which uh, some people say are a staunch ally of the U.S., is actually uh, an offspring of the PKK terrorist organization. You mentioned Turkey as a NATO member. There have been some inside NATO who have said it, it should no longer be a NATO member, that it is not mm. a liberal democracy, that buying the S-400 um, air defense system from the Russians runs counter to everything mm. that NATO is, because it's designed to balance Russian influence. Mm -hmm. What do you say to people who do not believe that Turkey belongs in NATO anymore? Well, I would refute, you refute those claims. Uh, we are a staunch ally. Uh, as I said, we are the second army in NATO. Uh, we uh, allocate uh, an important part of our, uh, our national uh, resources to uh, defense. Actually, the NATO benchmark is 2% of the GDP, which we have upheld. We are one of the few allies who have done that. Uh, so that uh, got some praise from President Trump also. Uh, and uh, we are committed uh, to NATO ideals. We are a liberal democracy. Uh, our president was elected by 52% of the population. But you've jailed tens of thousands of journalists, protesters, uh, opposition members. Yes, that's very exaggerated. I would say uh, the number is 100, but... Uh, 100 people? 100 journalists, yes. Uh, but uh, they are, uh, some are, were released only recently. Uh, there are ongoing cases. I would agree that sometimes uh, it could be a bit heavy-handed, but we uh, don't forget we live in a rough neighborhood. We are, uh, if you just visualize the map and look around us, uh, you will understand the issues we are uh, dealing with. Uh, there was actually a cartoon where Turkey is this big dam holding back terrorism, and Europe is the uh, little farm down uh, uh, there doing their, uh, their uh, work. So if that dam bursts, that farm will not exist. And uh, 
it's uh, we operate under uh, difficult circumstances so uh, we have to be tough with terrorism and we indeed are but uh, that doesn't mean that we jail journalists uh, turkey is a free society even the pkk the proscribed terrorist organization uh, runs a daily newspaper in turkey under the name yeni yaşam uh, which is an offspring uh, of that organization but uh, the freedom of press uh, allows it to function but if you're buying systems from Russia, which yes. NATO is designed to counter. How can you be a member of NATO? And, and now the F-35 program has been suspended from Turkey because there are operational mm. security concerns. How can you be buying things from Russia and potentially weapon systems from Russia and yet being a part of the alliance that's designed to counter Russia? Indeed. Uh, well, we are, it's not unprecedented. Uh, Greece uh, has S-300 since uh, 99 and uh, they are stationed on Crete. Uh, I was the Turkish ambassador to Greece before this, and they tested them when I was there. And uh, they were even going to put them on a national day display, but they removed them. So it's not unprecedented for NATO to have these. Uh, we are now in the process of uh, coordinating that with our uh, staunch ally, the US. And uh, of course, it's not a, uh, our first choice. It was a necessity for us. Uh, for many years, we tried to buy the Patriots. Uh, they were subject to uh, Congress approval. The price was not good, and uh, the uh, sharing of technology was not good. But still, we have said, our president has said, that uh, we are ready to buy also Patriots. And we are trying to work a way how to uh, manage the S-400s together with the F-35s uh, within the th same theater. But it's a national uh, security matter for us. and. Uh, as I said, we, uh, if you visualize our neighbors, you will understand why. Can NATO members trust Turkey, though, if it's working so closely with Vladimir Putin? Of course, why not? Uh, we can be friends with, uh, we can be in NATO, be friends both with uh, the U.S. Uh, and Russia, and uh, engage constructively. That does not mean we are 100% uh, in line with uh, NATO, pol uh, with uh, Russian policies. Uh, and we like everything they stand for and do. Uh, we have our uh, own issues with them. Like if you ask a, a Russian diplomat, I'm sure he will tell you at least a list of 10 issues which we uh, don't see eye to eye, like Ukraine being one of them, Cyprus being another, uh, and the list is quite a long one. But uh, on the other hand, uh, we are uh, in the same neighborhood. It's a very important country. We have to have a uh, minimum relationship. and. Uh, Coordinate, and our coordination in Syria, in, a, in Syria is actually going quite well. One of the consequences of your incursion into Syria has been that you've come into um, responsibility for a number of former ISIS fighters because mm -hmm. the Kurds had camps there. Do you know if you have any Canadian citizens among those ISIS fighters? I do. Uh, well, we don't. Uh, now, we have acquired, uh, let's say, 287, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Daesh uh, prisoners. Actually, they were set free by the YPG while they were uh, withdrawing. Canadian prisoners? No, no. Uh, Daesh prisoners. Uh, they were set free uh, while they were withdrawing. We caught them and put them back in prison. Among them, there are no Canadians. Uh, I can tell you, according to my information, uh, that is within uh, our safe zone I'm talking about. But beyond the safe zone, uh, there might be, but we don't control that area, so I can't uh, say anything about them. Within Turkey, again, we have uh, 1,000, uh, 
1,280 Daesh prisoners, uh, people from Daesh who are in prison in Turkey. There's one Canadian among them, but he's ser serving a 10-year uh, prison sentence for uh, crimes uh, in our country. So uh, I don't think uh, he will be returned soon. Do you think that Turkey will continue to expand into Syria and there's a chance that you may encounter Canadian citizens there? It's uh, possible that we might encounter uh, Canadian citizens, but I don't think uh, we will uh, expand any uh, further. Now, what we are uh, there to do is we have reached our goals, our declared, well-declared goals, the 30-kilometer-wide uh, uh, safe zone. And within that area, we are trying to create the conditions uh, to where uh, the refugees, uh, the Syrian refugees in our country, and there are four million of them, and uh, we've been looking after them for eight and a half years, and we've spent 50 billion Canadian dollars for these people, for their education, health care, their well-being, their, uh, I mean, everything, housing and uh, camps. Uh, so now uh, we want to create the conditions where these people will voluntarily return to their own country. And that was one of the reasons why we wanted to establish this safe zone, uh, because it's a big burden on us. It's actually a world record, I must say. So we will focus on the uh, positive now. Uh, we will rebuild their towns. Uh, we have uh, just uh, rebuilt the water system, which was out of order for eight years. And uh, we are giving them medicine and food. Uh, so we will focus on the positive now, try to pick up the pieces. Ambassador, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Just under a month ago, the Bloc Québécois experienced a resurrection in the federal election, coming back from the political wilderness. La Belle Provence delivered 32 seats to the bloc, and the party now finds itself potentially playing the role of kingmaker for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's minority government. With the rising tensions between Ottawa and some western provinces, and those between Alberta and Quebec, I sat down with Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blachette. Here's that conversation. Monsieur Blachette, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's a pleasure. You've spoken with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau this week. You've spoken about the importance of making sure that Quebec's needs are met, and that being a priority for you, but also that Quebec should be its own country. What is the bigger priority for you as the bloc leader, to ensure that Quebec's interests are represented in Parliament or to try to separate from Canada? We understand very well that the mandate we received from the Quebecers uh, was not to tear the parliament apart, was not to prove that this country does not work, was not to go against Quebecers' interests in order to prove our point that we should be a country. The party is an independentist party and will remain such, but in the meantime, and uh, waiting for the moment where there would be a majority in Quebec parliament sharing this point of view, we will have to promote and protect the best interests of Quebecers and that's what we propose to do during the campaign and that's what we intend to do during the mandate. And it seems you'll only bring the government down if there's something you believe is contrary to Quebec's interest. Do you expect that because of that you'll be Prime Minister Trudeau's primary ally in Parliament? Actually I do not think in terms of bringing the government down or not. We will vote in favor of what is good for Quebec and against what is bad for Quebec. But I expect that between our clear positions 
of, of what we want and what we do not want, there's, a, there's room for discussion, negotiations with the government in order to help them do their job. I do not believe that Canadians or Quebecers uh, elected a minority government in order to go back in elections in two years. They just decided that that's the parliament they wanted. And I suppose that this comes with the obligation to collaborate, to find common grounds and have things uh, be uh, successfully achieved in order to satisfy the needs of every part of, of Canada and of Quebec. You've spoken about Alberta oil and you've said mm -hmm. that you will not support new pipelines being built. After your comments yesterday, uh, pardon me, after your comments earlier in the week, Premier Kenny came out and he said that you, Monsieur Blanchette, cannot have your cake and eat it too. Pick a lane. <coughs> Either you can say, Quebec, that you no longer want to take the energy and equalization resources that come from Western Canada's oil and gas industry, or you can do as we do as Canadians and come together and support each other. What's your response to Mr. Kenny's comments? This is not as much an issue for Alberta and Quebec. And I would first I would remind Mr. Kenny that the first fight in the coming, in the, the recent sequence was between uh, Mrs. Nutley and British Columbia about Trans Mountain. Quebec was not part of it. So it's not a fight between Quebec and Alberta. I seem to understand that this fight, this attitude serves his purpose. But this purpose is not mine. What I say is the planet, the country and Quebec cannot afford going on with this compulsive extraction of oil, burning of oil, and then contribution to climate change, which is the worst threat over this planet for the time being. Quebec wants to do things differently. We have clean energy, a lot of natural resources, many expertise, research centers. We could do something else with our part of that money. Because it's not true that first, can, uh, Alberta does not send a check to Quebec. That's not true. That simply does not exist. And he keeps repeating that. Uh, I would uh, be glad if he started explaining things with truth instead of some false affirmations as we see. Uh, but Quebec does benefit from the money that Alberta taxpayers who are employed in that industry pay in that then go in equalization payments. Yeah, and but Quebecers of contribute more to equalization comes from federal income. And Quebec contributes more to federal income than Alberta does. And Alberta does no check and gives no check to Quebec. So, so where and does there that will money be, come from there would Quebec? be no oil industry in Alberta if Quebec had not willingly or not contributed to the very beginning of that industry so many years ago. We were the one providing money to them back then. And we are not saying keep giving us that money. Bloc Québécois does not say that. The Bloc Québécois says at the end of the day, we would do better by ourselves without your oil, without your money. We should start, all of us, consuming less and less oil, not more and more, because we cannot, as a country, as a province, as a planet, we cannot afford that. And it seems to me pretty irresponsible to keep promoting this instead. It's their business, not mine. I'm not, you know, I'm not managing Alberta, but should we not all start using those resources in order to work on a 
But their economy is, is dependent on it. They say that they give money to us because they are rich. If they are rich, why don't they use this, those resources to transform their own economy? We cannot say that we need those resources to develop our economy, but we know that those resources will, be, will have some catastrophic effects on the climate of the whole planet. Isn't there something entirely irresponsible? Should they not? It's theirs to make the decision, but the whole planet will comment on that. Should they not start working on the transition? Should they not invest in something else, in some new resources, in some new technologies? Should they not try to get out of this But oil economy because it is basically bad for everybody? People say that Quebec benefits from it. 44% of your oil comes from Alberta. Over half of it is coming through a pipeline. Yeah, you yeah. yourself as environment minister signed off on the reversal of the Line 9 pipeline. So and is it okay when it's in Quebec's interest but not anyone else's? Let me explain a few things first. I never said that Quebec does not use oil. I said, however, that we should use less and less and less. 43% of electrical vehicles in Canada are in Quebec. This is one very good way to reduce our oil consumption. We are not saying that we have to stop using it tomorrow morning. We are saying that we must start doing what has to be done in order to consume less and less, not more and more. And I was the one to authorize the change of direction of the 9B and bridge line because, because of that, we are fully supplied in Quebec. And any other part of oil that would come from Alberta in Quebec would be for the single purpose, purpose of exportation through Quebec, then to New Brunswick, and then transformation and exportation. There's nothing for us in it, there's no need for us in it, and there's no reason for us to support that. So we have the right to say that we do not want it. Either they like it or not, it is our absolutely legitimate right to say that we do not agree with that. Given your experience with sovereignism and separatism in Quebec, do you think that the separatist sentiment in Alberta is genuine and that there's a possibility that province could leave Canada? I want to say very respectfully that the desire to become a country should be fueled by something else than anger, resentment. I seem to understand that some people in Western Canada don't feel comfortable in the present form of this country. It's theirs to make that decision. But the desire to do whatever they want with their oil or their, their model for economic development based on oil might not be a sufficient reason to fuel a desire to become a country. And actually, I do not believe that much that they have such a desire. I believe that some people are using it in order to create a stronger position for themselves facing Ottawa or facing British Columbia or facing Quebec about what they want to do. And, you know, the liberals of Justin Trudeau are as much in favor of oil exploitation than the conservatives of Mr. Kenny or the conservatives of Mr. Scheer. The fact is basically that Mr. Kenny and Mr. Scheer are against any form of tariff on uh, uh, carbon uh, gas emissions. 
And that's the next fight. Because the other part of it is this strange and hardly believable idea of a corridor that would go through Quebec and uh, forcefully uh, transit toward the Atlantic coast to export oil. I do not believe that to be a serious idea. And before it could even start to be accomplished, the whole planet would be starting seriously to do things differently and actually consume yet less and less oil. Western world is trying to go toward that. And uh, it's simply you know, stubborn in some way to say that that's the only model for Western economy. That does not belong to me, but I'm not going to support something which is that dangerous for the planet and for Quebec. One last quick question. Would you consider inviting Premier Kenny to visit you or traveling to Alberta? Because some say, look, this, this disagreement between Quebec and Alberta is becoming so nasty. It's not good for Canadians. Two things, if I may. The first one is that if it becomes in any way nasty, it will not be because of me. A few years ago, I was known as the goon because I had quite a temper. Maybe I got older, but I'm doing every effort to remain very polite very peaceful in the way I do politics. And in an interview this morning, I said, I doubt such a meeting would happen. And then I thought about it and I said, I must not say that. And I must keep the door open to discuss publicly or privately with either Mr. Kenny or anybody else to, if not get an agreement, at least get to understand each other's position better because what we see now, mostly on social media, is getting pretty bad. It's a uh, trade of insults and it's against the interests of everybody. It prevents everybody from having the opportunity to present one's vision of things. Uh, so if it might be helpful for me to go there and have a discussion with Mr. Kenny or anybody else, uh, I think I have the responsibility to do this. Monsieur Blanchet, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh met with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to talk about what his party wants if the Liberals hope to secure NDP support in this minority parliament. But with the NDP dropping to fourth party status and being shut out of the Maritimes and left with only one seat in Quebec, how much influence do they really have when the House resumes next month? Joining me now is Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Well, You've had a chance to meet with Justin Trudeau. You sat down, you laid out your priorities, and you listed a number of them in a letter that you, you provided to the Prime Minister. They included things like pharmacare, dental care, reconciliation for Indigenous people. Um, you also talked about cell phone bills. You talked about housing. You know the old saying, if you have 99 priorities, you don't have one. <laughs> What's your red line in this speech that you need to see and able to be able to, to feel good about passing the throne speech and to be willing to do that? Well, I put out three specific priorities that are for the, the throne speech, things that I want to see that the prime minister is taking very seriously and committing to some concrete steps. One is a universal public pharmacare, and that means pharmacare for all, publicly delivered, following the Prime Minister's own report, the Hoskins report, which recommends a public system. Uh, secondly, I want to see some timelines, really concrete timelines around when this would roll out, 
uh, some dates, maybe a meeting with the uh, health ministers of the provinces, something concrete that we can say there's some clear action uh, going towards achieving universal pharmacare. I asked for an openness towards the dental care. This is something that Canadians really were excited about because so many people can't get the care they need. And so I, I asked the Prime Minister to show some openness to to implementing a national dental care. And then on climate crisis, I want to see concrete steps, uh, stronger emissions targets, but also some accountability so that government can't just miss a target without any repercussions, and also a commitment to creating jobs. These are some of the criteria that I look, uh, I'll look at as signs of a of a government that's willing to work with New Democrats. And finally, one other piece that I, that I think is very important is dropping the appeal against First Nations or Indigenous kids who were discriminated against, and as a result, there's been some painful, tragic uh, deaths. And so, as a starting point for, for fairness for First Nations, First People of this land, would be to drop the appeal against First Nations kids. Let's take a look at the pharmacare aspect because you mentioned specific funding, specific dates, and that it would have to be universal. If there are not those three things outlined in the throne speech, if it just says we're committing to some form of pharmacare, is that a no-go for you? Is that that you will vote it down if you don't see those very specific items? So just just kind of to turn it around a bit, uh, I am willing to vote against the throne speech, so, so that's a fair question. But my goal isn't to look for ways to tear down the government. I want to look for ways to be constructive. So my goal is if the Prime Minister can show some clear signals that it's not just words, but there's some concrete steps, that'll show me that there's a willingness to be able to work together. I don't want to draw any you know, orange lines in the sand, but I, I do want to show that I'm, I'm firm. I'm not just gonna sit back and expect or think that, or allow the, the Prime Minister to expect that he'll get support from the New Democrats for nothing. I want some concrete commitments, but I'm gonna be open to that. So we're gonna have to see what happens in the throne speech and see if there's, there's some willingness to really move forward on things that'll help Canadians out and make their lives better. How much leverage do you think you have? Because the Bloc Québécois has 32 seats and they've basically said, look, as long as you don't mess with Quebec's interests, we'll keep Parliament in session. We're not looking to bring the government down right away. They have more seats than you. That The Prime Minister could say, thanks NDP, but we don't actually need you. Well, it's not about uh, whether the Prime Minister needs us or the Bloc. It's about what our goals are. I'm fighting for Pharmacare. So if the Prime Minister wants to move ahead with something, that, that's going to make people's lives better. Uh, I'm gonna push the Prime Minister to do that and encourage real steps. And if he wants to work with somebody to actually develop something like a, a dental care program, we're the ones pushing for that. So he'll need to work with us if he wants to deliver it. He doesn't have to though. He can work with anyone else. So you're right, he's not limited. But we're the ones who've made it a priority to develop a universal pharmacare that's public and dental care that's national and to make sure we have real commitments to fight for rights of indigenous peoples and to fight for climate crisis action while we're creating jobs. So for those things, we're pushing for it. And if he wants to work with us, we're ready to work on those things. And, and you're, you're definitely prioritizing them, but considering in a minority situation, he doesn't have to count on your support in order to get it through. What do you think your play is to get him to listen to you and actually push those priorities? Well, well it's, it's a matter of if he wants to achieve any of those things, those are our priorities. They haven't been laid out as priorities for the block, for example. So if he wants to develop a universal pharmacare, we're the ones that are going to push for a truly universal system. He could, and that's his choice. He could also work with conservatives and signal that he doesn't want to uh, make life better for Canadians. He wants to go down the path of conservatives and, and continue to give wealthy 
Canadians, the richest people, those at the very top advantages. He could choose that. I'm going to fight to say that's not going to help out Canadians. That's not going to make life better for our country and for the people that live here. And so I'm going to encourage Mr. Trudeau to look at New Democrats as allies to make things better for Canadians. He doesn't have to. He can work with the Conservatives and give tax breaks to the richest Canadians if he wants to. Uh, I believe that Canadians deserve better, and I'm going to encourage that. How do you feel about the Prime Minister working with the Bloc? I mean, they are a party that says ultimately they want Quebec to be its own country. They have Quebec's interests first in mind. Does, does that concern you at all that he could simply rely on them to put his platform through? I mean, he was elected by the people of Canada on that platform, but that reliance on a separatist party? Well, I think... Um, when it comes to making people's life better, whether it's in Canada or in Quebec, it's new Democrats that are really fighting for things that are going to make people's life better. Our universal pharmacare plan, the one we're proposing, is going to make life better for people in Quebec and across Canada. The fact that uh, Mr. Trudeau would rely on the support of uh, a party that doesn't seem, that seems to be interested in, in some divisive politics, that seems to be interested in dividing Canada, uh, seems to be not a good way to go ahead uh, when we're ready to work with all Canadians, making sure people in Quebec get a fair deal, making sure people in the West get a fair deal, Atlantic Canada gets a fair deal. You know, we're really the option when it comes to working with a national party that wants to make life better for Canadians. That's us. There's a lot of anger in the West right now. There's a lot of frustration in Alberta. People feel they've been abandoned. They feel people uh, are condescending to them, that they're not understanding how dire the situation is there. When you take a look at what's happening with Alberta, does it at all make you rethink your position on pipelines? Well, it makes me, it makes me think about the fact that there's a lot of people that are feeling neglected. And, and they're right to feel that because in the past four years, Mr. Trudeau hasn't made it a priority to, to deal with some of the economic struggles that people are going through. He hasn't made investments in things like healthcare to make life better for Canadians. And I think people are frustrated by that. In Alberta and in the West in general, there's a lot of people that are worried about their future when it comes to jobs. And that's a real fear. And that's why when I talk about fighting the climate crisis, it has to be a plan to also create good jobs. No matter what happens, we know that in, in Alberta and in Saskatchewan, their economies have gone through busts and booms. And it's been no fault of the hardworking men and women that go to work every day in those provinces. It's because of global markets. And I think people deserve a lot better than the volatility of an economy based on just a couple of commodities or just one commodity in the case of Alberta. I think Canadians deserve a lot better. And I'm committed to making sure those folks are not left behind that we build a more sustainable and long-lasting economy. I know it's possible. Is it time to look at the equalization formula and maybe revise it? I think we should always be open to making sure all of our programs, including equalization, are fair and respond appropriately to the needs of our country. That's something that we should always be open to. But if you look at kind of what the premiers are doing in some of those provinces, they're not looking for solutions, they're looking for divisions. And I don't think that's the job of a leader. A leader should be finding solutions to the problems people are faced with and finding ways to bring people together. That's not what I'm seeing from some of the premiers in conservative provinces. Okay, Mr. Singh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. That's all the time we have for today. For more, please go to our website, thewestblock.ca, and you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for joining us. I'm Mercedes Stevenson.